0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Chipping Away, where your hosts Takash and Durga take you on journeys of South Asia through its archaeology and anthropology. So today, instead of chipping away at rocks, let's probably arrange them, stack them, or have beautiful structures out of them. What say?
1: You mean make it megalithic?
0: Hmm, I like that pun.
1: Well, who wouldn't? It's a big stone. <laughs> Let's rock and roll.
0: Sure, go with it.
1: Megaliths. So, what are they? Well, as the name say, mega, pig, and lithic stone. So, basically, these are arrangements or some kind of association of large stones, boulders, uh, slabs, or even carved structures such as the Maui of Easter Island, which are basically made out of large rocks.
0: Although these are not cemented together, right? So there's no use of mortar or cement or any binding material to put them together.
1: Yes. So the difference between megaliths and other structural architecture made of rock is that they are not cemented together. Mm -hmm.
0: And they can be arranged in circular form or rectangular or maybe triangular?
1: True. I mean... You have various formations of stones, as many as there are stones. So you could just have single stone structures, like a single standing upright stone, that's called a menir. Or you could have uh, stones arranged in a circular formation, literally called a stone circle. Or dolmens, wherein you take slabs of stones and arrange them like the form of a table.
0: Like a house in some cases.
1: True. And finally, you also have stone alignments, wherein you arrange large stones or upright stones in various arrangements and alignments. An example of this is the Stonehenge in the Salisbury Plain of United Kingdom.
0: And it was in 1823 that Bevington reported first Megalithic in South Asia in the British records. And the Megaliths did not come out of nowhere. I think most of the people around the world knew of their existence or the practices associated with megalithic structures. But it just found an academic place or a place in academic inquiry since the 19th century. And since then, we have had a lot of systematic studies about megaliths in South Asia and around the world. And megaliths have played an important part or important role in the local narratives about space. How the cultural landscape was perceived by the locals, and how megaliths were a character in some of these myths is an interesting topic of study. So let's not launch into that just yet. But it's interesting to know that a Buddhist text from 5th century from South India uh, titled as Manimekalai mentions the culture of building megaliths or commemorating the dead with structures similar to the megalith structures in the form of stones, stone circles and dolmens. That provides an interesting insight into how the, lo- the local narratives interact with the textual narratives of the time.
1: That's true. And megalithism as a behavior is not something that's only limited in time and space. We have examples of megaliths from all over the world, be it Europe, the Middle East, South Asia, or even East Asia and Southeast Asia. You also have examples in the Pacific Islands. As already discussed, in Europe, you have various important sites such as Stonehenge in England, as well as Newgrange in Ireland. These are dated to the Neolithic or the Bronze Age of Europe. In the Middle East, one of the oldest structures in the world is that of Göbekli Tepe in Turkey. This site is considered by many as probably the first or maybe one of the earliest possible ritual centers or temples in the world. This too is a megalithic site. In East and Southeast Asia, we have various megalithic sites in Korea, Thailand, as well as Laos, which is famous for its fields of stone jars. In the Pacific Islands, as we already mentioned, we have the famous Mao or Easter Island heads of Easter Island.
0: And after this whirlwind world tour of megaliths, it is evident that most of these megalithic structures can be dated variously uh, across a large swath of time. So some belong to the Neolithic time period, some to the Bronze Age, and then some to the Iron Age. If you were to look at South Asia in particular, most of the megalithic structures are dated historically to the Iron Age in South Asia or in, in the subcontinent in general. And most of the sites that we know of today or are documented and studied lie to the south of narmada river valley in india
1: for example in karnataka the site of hirabhinakal is of prominence it is a hill that is covered with dolmen and in kerala the site of aryanur has umbrella stones it's like dolmens but the capstone is curved so it looks like an umbrella
0: Hmm, interesting and I think there's another site in Sri Lanka which is very similar in structure to these two sites that you mentioned. So, so the site of uh, Ibn Katwa in Sri Lanka boasts of such megalithic structures are very similar to dolmens.
1: However, the act of erecting megalithic structures is not something lost in time. Modern social groups across South Asia still continue and practice erecting megalithic structures in memory of those of their community they have lost. So to throw light on this matter about what megaliths are and possibly even who might have built them, we have with us today Miss Oishi Roy. She is a postdoctoral researcher who works on iron technology in central India, specifically Vidarbha, which is the eastern part of Maharashtra. Hi Oishi. Hi Oishi. Hi.
2: Hi Akash. Hi Durda.
1: So, tell us, what are megaliths?
2: See, uh, when we're talking about megaliths, megaliths, very simply, if you break the word, it is mega is big and lith is stone. So, it's basically big stone architecture. So, very simply saying megaliths are burial architecture. That was being done by the people who were iron-using people or an iron-producing people. So these people, uh, they wanted to bury their dead. And to bury the dead, they were making these structure using these big, big stones or big, big boulders. So that is simply what is megalic.
0: Right. And you mentioned iron use. Like these cultures of people were using iron tools and implements. So that's how we connect megaliths with Age, is it? Yes, uh, not for every part of, in, of the Indian
2: subcontinent, but for the region that I work in, that is Vidharva region, that is Nagpur, Chandrapur, Garchirod region. Region, yes, with megalith is contemporary, not just using iron, producing and using.
1: So uh, what exactly is your work? What do you do?
2: see i basically am trying to use uh, the tool of archaeometallurgy that is studying the ancient metallurgical techniques that that these people used to adopt and used to innovate and invent and specifically to iron technology uh, and to understand how was those technologies developed and what was the society like like, who were these iron producing people and how were they producing it based on some ethnography? Ethnography means studying the present day living tribes, present day living indigenous communities. So, using different tools of study to understand what it was this early iron age society in Vidarbha who were making megaliths also for the dead and who were producing iron tools.
0: Could you elaborate a little about the connection between the ancient societies and modern societies that you have seen through your study?
2: If you look at uh, the region called Garchiroli, which is uh, Mm -hmm. on the border of Telangana and Maharashtra, it's a very interesting place because it is uh, absolutely nestled in deep forested tracts and uh, very undulated uh, terrain. And we have a tribe living there called the Wont tribe. Hmm. Yeah, you have two clans. That is the uh, Bada Gons and the Chota Mariyagwans mm-hmm. and the Bada Mariyagwans who stay in the forested tracks so they still use slings uh, bow and arrow and uh, they still hunt, they don't really do agriculture they do hunting like rats, mongoose but then when you speak with them and when you ask them about the death rituals, it is very interesting to know that they make dolmens and dolmen not for their dead what you see as dolmen and dolmenites is that, that we found in the southern region from Brahmagiri and columns uh, and no Similar structure is still done by the Baramariya gods.
0: Hmm.
2: They use four boulders to line up their pit. This pit is dug underground and they, lie, they lay the body there with some funerary. They believe in funerary offerings, which is another hmm. big trait of Vidarvan Meghal. It's funerary offerings related to your life that you led and they will always place a a small piece of gold or sometimes a small piece of silver because that is considered as a passage that is a passage that is a passage money from living to the dead and it is very similar like in southern india they still do it they put gold it's passage money basically so uh, and then they line up the pit using four boulders and uh, on top they put another boulder as a capstone so if you look at the uh, cross-section or if you look at the bird's eye, eye view, it's absolutely like a dolmen. That is like literally archaeology staring at you on your face. See, I'm here. It still exists. Right. Those traits still exist. <laughs> like if mm-hmm. we don't find those these traits in them, then we won't be able to ever interpret anything. And if you look at the Chota mm-hmm. gods again. Chota Mariagwans mm-hmm. also have a very similar trend. Like uh, people, we have cairn circles and stone circles. Stone circles, basically, when you see a bird's eye view, you see boulders and they're kept in a circular pattern. Like there's a pit in between where you lay down your body with all your community offerings. And then that pit mm-hmm. is filled up with cobbles and pebbles. And then that pit is lined in a circular manner with big boulders. So that's basically a cairn circle or a stone circle also. So the Chota mariagans they do their burials in two stages. One is a primary burial and one is a secondary burial. The primary burial is where they take the body, which is uh, their uh, burial ground is away from the habitation near to a water body. This is again very similar to a Vedharvan megalithic, because all megalithic sites are on a bank of a water body. And then they dig, dig a pit and they lie the body there. And they put funerary offerings there like hookah pipe, then rice, toadib, then uh, they put, a, a f- they sacrifice a fowl or a chicken and they put that also. They actually close that pit, you make a tumuli on top of that with cobbles and pebbles. So if, when you look at it, it's exactly like a can circle. And then on top of the tumuli, they put all the clothing of the deceased and the charpoy and all. so If you see a freshly constructed burial or if you see a burial being constructed, say it's a circle. And then on the 13th day, what they do after everything happens, like on the 13th day, they throw a feast and they have a community memorial ground. They don't call a burial ground, which is near to the habitation, just at the beginning of the habitation where they erect a menhir for the male and a dolmen for the female. And it is a feast for the entire community. But then not everybody can do a community feast. So not everybody has a menhir or a dolmen in his name after his or her name after he died. So you see the similar, when we are talking about like uh, uh, in archaeology, we always say that the habitation is so big where people used to stay, but we get a burial so few. Why do we get so few burials? So, it can be answered that not everybody had the money to give a very elaborate burial. It's not about money, it's about people and also, and if now we are telling money, then also it will be some other commodity which will work as money. So, not everybody can give a burial or elaborate burial. So, it was the burial or erecting a menhir or a dolmen is very, it was selective people so you get analogy from your from ethnographic context to our context to understand your archaeological data it's very interesting it, it actually the, the analogy actually, st- actually stares at your face you just have to interpret it you just have to look at the right place
1: that's true that's wonderful
0: i think ethnography really gives us the stages of development and the sacrosanct aspect about some structures that we normally and see. And
2: also understand and- the cognitive cognitive behavior behind these societal understanding, their behavior towards life after death, their behavior towards ancestry worship, which is because such things will never survive in the archaeological context. We always have to interpret mm-hmm. And if you're getting uh, context, uh, these from the ethnographic context, much easier for us to interpret the cognition because cognition plays a very important role and,
0: and i think you mentioned something about the water body or proximity to water body hmm. and i remember when we went to Bhagimori, we had a again a site in vidarba we had a similar setting where some of the stone circles were very close to the water body yeah so could you talk a little about geography and how it ties with the Culture uh, of Megalith. Yeah. See, there is a very
2: important context here, also, ethnography plays a very role, a big role. Why water body? Like, people believe that uh, spirits cannot cross water. This is what. Oh, interesting. Yeah, spirits cannot cross water. So, they always keep the burial ground opposite their habitation, across the habitation, with the boundary line as a water body as their boundary line. And also, mm. water body. It is very uh, important for us. So if you see a Hindu right. Hindu uh, death ritual, we, after the burning, we have to go and deposit uh, ashes into the water. So that important mm. water is still there and water is actually the root of life. So without water, we cannot live. So we can interpret water in many different ways. Hmm. But I still have a very big question. How did they cross those waters, those deep waters with those boulders? Because if you remember, Durga, the water body in Bhagimori was pretty deep. That's right.
0: We had to wade through it, if not swim. Right, right. I was wondering if they quarried the stone from the other side of the river itself. But
2: I mean, here you need to do a lot of field work, a lot of... We need to look That's at right. things in a very different way, which we haven't done till now, mm-hmm. unfortunately.
1: So this brings out an interesting topic. How did they make these structures? Because you said, like, there are certain locations and they're large stones. So how did they go about manufacturing these structures?
2: Don't know. Because even the gondis now, they don't use such big boulders. They use... To make the tumuli, they use small stones and pebbles that we find lying around mm. us. They don't use those huge huge uh, boulders. So we really don't know from how did they make bring it or how did they do it.
1: But could we assume that such large structures needed like leader, a lot of people to work together?
2: It was not a, just a family thing. It was a community. They had this feeling of community. This community mm. already come into being. It was, See, if you see in the bonds, they have a community feasting. Then only they erect their men here.
0: So, the feeling of
2: community was always there.
0: Right. And do you think the use of iron technology or iron tools would have facilitated maybe uh, quarrying of such big stone slabs?
2: Otherwise, wearing dolerite and basalt is not possible using copper. Copper is a soft metal. You need iron Mm -hmm. for
0: that. Mm hmm. So we could juxtapose the technological advancement and this construction activity, or the tradition of constructing megaliths.
2: Basically, they use fire to crack the surface of the Mm.
1: stone.
2: Very huge fire. They actually build a huge fire and they crack the surface using pykreon. I think that is the uh, way they were doing it.
1: So I guess Mm. once I think you split the rock, you had to use a lot of your own physical traction and force to.
2: if you remember, when we were doing physics, there was something called fulcrum. Like you put, a, you fit your your stick into something and you put a force, load on this side and then it's lifted. So it's something, they were using physics into it. Because see, even here, when they were using iron, they can chisel out the stone by breaking. But then eventually hmm. to bring it from the query side to the megalithic building side, they will have to use physics to roll it, to pull it, Push it, that iron will not help in any way.
1: Sure.
0: sure. And what kind of iron tools have you found through excavations in other parts of South Asia and in ethnographic?
2: So, when we talk about the Vidarvan Iron Age, you can actually group your iron artifacts into different categories based on how they were being utilized. First, Mm -hmm. the grouping that we do is utilitarian artifacts and the ritualistic artifacts. So, utility is basically something that is being utilized or is being used. And ritualistic is they used to make miniature artifacts of the same tools to be just buried with the deceased as funerary offerings. So, with the artifact, mm-hmm. artifact, you have uh, agricultural tools. Then you have uh, defensive offensive purposes. Then you have horse ornaments. Then you have household artifacts like ladle. Then you have uh, bowls. Then you have weighing scales. So this is how you categorize uh, when you're working with iron tool. So because based on these categories of tool also, uh, we actually come down to the concept of standardization. Then we come down to the concept of specialization of labor. Because uh, specific tools will be used by specific artisans. And those specific artisans will be performing specific profession. Then you have fish hoops fishhooks, we get very rarely fishhooks, we got all the fishhooks from Bagi So we can very, very clearly say that at that, that site fishing was a common occupation because we do not get any fish fishhooks from all the other sites. So that is how you can even categorize your site. So that this site had this profession, Naikund had... Um, a group of iron smelters and smithers because we do not get any evidence of smelting activity or smithery activity from any of the other sites except Mm -hmm.
0: nicole you mentioned the ritualistic artifacts so were these miniatures also made of iron or were they of any other metal okay no no iron iron it was just a small size it has been diminuted do we have any instances where terracotta caskets or any other paraphernalia for burial or grave goods was used?
2: Uh, for Vidarbha, it is a very rare case, but we do have a lot of sarcophagus from southern Indian megaliths. Hmm. Then also, you see, sarcophagus is not only oblong or not only rectangular. It can always be an urn pot also. So you get a lot of evidences from Porkalam, Sannur, Adi of these. Uh.
1: It's interesting. So we know the makers of these megaliths had really complex societies, like you said. There was some kind of social stratification. They had complex skill sets. They had horses. They had different types of burial practices. Different groups of people. So we can assume yeah. safely that this was a very complex society.
2: Yes, and if you look at the technology that it was that they were using to make those iron artifacts, yes, but complexity in the tradition? No.
0: So there's a general uniformity across the Darbya region in these traditions or rituals?
2: Yes. Because okay. they follow the same pattern. There is no different pattern. Mm-hmm. They follow this. They use the same tools. They gave the same funerary offerings. They made the same structures and their orientation mm-hmm. was also the same. So there was no, uh, no such differences.
1: So when you and, mean, uh, what do you imply?
2: orientation of the body, north
1: south. Okay. okay. So, the head was always facing north.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: And I'm going to change gears just for a bit because this has been a pressing question in my head about iron smelting and making of iron tools and implements. So, could you tell us a little bit about the smelting sites and um, what is the associated material?
2: So, the only site <laughs> which is known in Vidarva is Naikud. And why do you say that Nikon is a smelting site? Because we get evidence of a furnace which has been replicated and is there in the Dekin College Museum. And uh, you get twerls and twerls is basically clay pipe through which the air passes. And it actually helps the carbon to get formed. Then you get cinders which is the burnt uh, charcoal. Then you have lumps. Then you have a lot of slack. And you have unfinished artifacts and you have finished artifacts too. So, based on these, you know that it is an iron smelting workshop. And we do not get any other evidence from any other sites till date. I hope we get more. Was till now the only center is Naipur.
0: I just have another question in terms of time. In what epoch do we situate Iron Age and megalithic cultures in South Asia, specifically in Vidarbha? just after the
2: Chalcolithic period and just before the early historic So to make it very simple. See, if you look at Nikon, we get 630 plus minus
0: 100 BCE.
1: Hmm. Okay, so about two and a half thousand years ago from present.
0: Yeah. Hmm. And one last question, maybe. <laughs> How do you situate with urban megalithic culture in the context of Iron Age culture in general?
2: When we used to talk about early Iron Age, there were two groups who used to say foreign origin, foreign, like, mm. iron has come from abroad, iron has come from, western, northwestern, western part of, uh, the world, and from Makran post, from Baluchistan and, uh, the Achaemenids got it in. When we tried to start, when we started saying that, no, we have indigenous origin, then the regions of Ganga, Plains, and Vidarbha started playing a very important role. Because if we have to argue that we have indigenous origin, then we need to have evidence. So Vidharba actually, along with the sites of Malharaj and Al Katila and Ahura Deva from the Ganga plains, Vidarbha has played a very important role for over a very long period of time to situate the Indian subcontinent on a very strong footing by saying that yes, we have evidence of indigenous iron working in this region. We have our own phase of development we were not dependent on anybody else in a very simple way.
1: Thank you so much, Oishi.
2: Cool.
0: It was wonderful talking with you all. Oh, thank you. The pleasure is ours.
1: Exactly. And we'll probably have you again some other time to discuss something else that you'd like to talk about. Sure. Cool. Thank you. so
0: much. Bye, see ya. Bye, see ya. And thank you all for tuning in into today's episode of Chipping Away. So keep the conversation alive And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ChippinAwayIND. And shoot us an email at ChippinAwayIND at gmail.com. So until next time, bye-bye.